This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, we look at BC's new international credentialing legislation for professionals, where we finally allow thousands of British Columbians stand for the workforce, and new research shows Canadians continue to struggle with monthly mortgage payments. We look at the bloodbath in the real estate industry. And why are 30% of all restaurants in Canada operating at a loss? We look at the upheaval expected in the restaurant business. Plus, after two decades on Wall Street, Bill Lomax, one of the Gitsan First Nation, returns back home to run the First Nations Bank of Canada. That's all next on the Jazz Jahal Show podcast. But first, let's get to our top story. Today, Restaurant Canada uh, released its 2023 market report to provide a snapshot of the health of our restaurant sector. The information, sadly, is incredibly concerning. One-third of all restaurants in Canada are operating at a loss. You can compare that to just 7% before the pandemic. And only 17% are presently uh, breaking even. It speaks to a significant amount of upheaval in the restaurant business. Joining me now to discuss the challenges uh, is Ian Tostenson. He's president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Ian, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me on, Jess. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Uh, and you're the guy to talk to on this issue, that's for sure. What do you make of... Uh, this uh, study from Restaurants Canada report that says a third of restaurants are operating at a loss and the sector is uh, poised for upheaval. Your thoughts on that? I think, uh, well, you know what, uh, it's, it's disappointing. Uh, it's not surprising. Uh, these are national numbers from Restaurants Canada. They do a great job with this kind of stuff. Uh, I think the numbers are a little bit higher in, in, uh, in British Columbia. And, um, you know, it's, and it's related to the obvious is price increases uh, in both, you know, food and um, our physical spaces, rent, um, taxes, everything around us is going up, and and we are just frankly unable to. I mean, we could we could solve this really easy if it was uh, if the supply demand curve was like neutral and just put our prices up and we'd be fine. But of course, as you well know, <laughs> we're not about to start eating thirty dollar hamburgers and or serving thirty dollar hamburgers. So. We're in a bit of a dilemma right now, for sure. Uh, the food price uh, increase, uh, the food for raw, the cost for raw material. Um, the, what's causing this? Have you gotten any sense from your restaurant members, uh, their suppliers? Like, what is driving this increase in food costs? Well, it's scarcity, uh, it's supply chain, um, it's California and drought and, um, you know, Mexico, and they've had some problems there. So it's really a combination of, you know, both your agricultural base, which is uh, which has been consistent, and it's, that's weather-related, and then also, and this is starting to improve, uh, and all these things will start to improve, is the supply chain itself. It's just that not, not being able to, we still, ca- you know, can you believe that? We're still catching up from the pandemic. And, um, you know, I look at... Um, you're talking about how much food goes into the Gaza Strip every day, how many trucks go in there. There's like seven or 800 trucks a day needed just to just that little smart part of the earth. So you can imagine how much food that we're ordering into, uh, you know, in the British Columbia to, to manage this. So that's that, those are the biggest big thing has been agricultural base and, and weather conditions and and supply chains moving out. But it's it's starting to come. But it's not it's not anywhere near like it was prior to the pandemic. And it was just because they don't have enough workers. I'm trying to understand because, you know, it's not like your methods have changed. You buy the food, you prepare the food, you sell the food. It's a simple concept. But is it just a case of they're not having enough truck drivers? I know I understand the weather conditions that I the droughts. I get that. But is it just not enough labor? I mean, what's I mean, it can't be just drought. I mean, you've dealt with drought years no. prior uh, no. in the industry? You've got, you know, you've got food and you've got all the rest of the commodities. You, you know, you've got um, everybody. Lo- so you look at uh, shipping stuff in from uh, Asia or from Europe. Um, it's just the availability of tankers. So much stuff has to move so quickly and it just gets bottlenecked. So you're right. I mean, it's probably not so much 
a labor shortage as it is just you know just infrastructure being able to keep up with the ports and uh, I mean look what happened when we had the uh, strike in Vancouver it put us behind two months and so all that all that backlog is still in the system and this backlog same in you know California and where we get a lot of our produce so it just it just simply you know how many ships do we have and how many trucks do we have to get to get this and there's been shifting um, commodities as well too is that there's been changes in what we're consuming and where we consume it where we're buying it from just because of supply so it's uh we're a ways away from solving that particular problem uh, how long before your restaurant like how long can your restaurants hold on when you know you're losing money and you got rent every yeah. month you've got uh, uh taxes you got wages you got everything else but i mean at what point does the reckoning come where people just throw in the towel and say that's enough i'm just walking away from this it's not worth it well, we're starting to see that now. I mean, uh, bankrupts, bankruptcies are up uh, considerably. I, I don't know what the current number is, but it's it's a lot higher than it ever has been. And we know that a lot of the operators, we're not really talking about chains here. We're talking about the majority of restaurants, which are independent. Um, they're maxed out with their line of credits. Um, so uh, we've got this looming issue right now that you and I have talked about is the, uh, is the CEBA loans that are due uh, to the federal government in January, and thanks to the Premier and the rest of the Premiers in Canada, they've written the Prime Minister, come on, let's extend this. No one wants free money, but give us an extension because we're in no position to pay that. So um, you're, just, you're just seeing the cost. We're seeing people just giving up, you know, just like they're working uh, long hours. You know, I was talking to a restaurant owner on Davie Street. He goes, I get here at 9, and I leave here at 1 o'clock in the morning. And I do that six days a week. So it's not sustainable. It's not enjoyable. And, uh, you know, I think we're going to see a break point. I think we will see, uh, you know, we are seeing it right now, a contraction in conventional ownership in restaurants. Yet, on the other side, um, you know, if you look at Daily Hive, and you'll see that there's a lot of investment going in. But they're coming with new concepts, new food ideas, smaller physical plants, which are a lot more efficient to operate and more costly. So sort of what goes out um, sort of gets put back in. That's always been the story of the restaurant industry. Welcome back to the show. If you're just joining us, we are speaking to Ian Tostenson. He is the president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. We're talking about a new report from Restaurant Canada, a new survey that they did that shows that one-third of all restaurants in Canada are operating at a loss. Uh, Pre-pandemic, that number was at 7%, and only about 17% are presently breaking even. Now, Ian, is it fair to say that there were structural challenges within the restaurant industry anyway, pre-COVID and with COVID itself making things worse, worse of course. Uh, so we're seeing a pretty big shakeup that um, potentially could be coming in the next few months or year? Yeah, I saw a really cool diagram, which was the restaurant of the future, and it had sort of three uh, three parts to it. It had a drive through mm-hmm. It had... Um, uh, takeout area for pickup, so for third-party delivery to pick up. It had actually four. It had a patio, and and then it had in-store dining. So it had all four components, and that's what's happened with the pandemic is that people like to go through drive-throughs, people like to have their food delivered, people like to go into restaurants, uh, but not as frequently as before because they have other ways of doing it. And when the weather's nice, to go to patios. We're seeing a lot of restaurants just aren't designed that way, and I I thought it was kind of like. I kind of rolled my eyes when I think it was in Port Moody where there an A&W guy is trying to install, uh, redo his property. He wants to keep his drive through but build hundreds of um, rental spaces, and they won't let him. They say, no, drive throughs are bad. But that's what people want. And and uh, so that's kind of the issue is that you're, if you're a restaurant on Robson Street, you have a hard time capturing the entire process that we want. So you may not be able to have a patio, um, you know, you're probably crowding your restaurant with, with delivery. We're seeing now, Jazz, that, oh, before the pandemic, maybe, you know, delivery, I'm talking third-party delivery, like Uber Eats, et cetera, was maybe, you know, 15% of our business. It's, it's settled at 30%, and it's not going down. So that's a very, very strong component because we all know how nice it is to sit at home and watch something on TV or a Canucks game or whatever we're doing. And you, and you get pretty good service and pretty good quality food at your front door with, if you want, uh, alcohol. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, you brought the, up the issue of the pandemic and loans that the restaurant industry had taken, restaurant owners and individually had taken. Uh, what are your thoughts uh, on that? Do you think the government will relent a little bit in regards to helping out uh, your members and many other industries as well? Or do you think that will be, could be one of the reasons why some of these restaurants further, you know, we, we will see further closures uh, because of these loans that are due? Yeah, I, I think it's a huge issue. I think it's, um, um, I think only about a third of all the loans in Canada, and not just restaurants, small business, uh, have been paid back. Um, you know, it was a great move the federal government did that. I think the government, federal government moved by doing these SIBA loans, which just, you know, for the audience was, there were $60,000 loans, and if you pay them back um, by this December, they forgive 20000 They've extended it once. But we're not in any better position now than we're, frankly, in fact, we're probably in a worse position right now as our industry and even retail to pay these back in December. So we're all saying in Canada, just give us a bit more time. No one wants to walk away from it. But I'm afraid that if the uh, if um, the prime minister doesn't act on this quickly, you're going to see a lot of people fold their cards. A lot of people can't get credit. A lot of people have maxed out. They've used their RSPs. They've used their line of credit. So, so going to a bank and saying, I need more money may not be that feasible. And if they go to refinance it, uh, we know that they're going to be refinancing at a higher interest rates, which is even, you know, another problem. So I think the government, federal government really needs to do this. And as I keep saying is that no one's wanting a bailout here. This is not free money. We just need a bit more time to pay for it. They've, um, they did extend it by 18 days, big deal. And then they said, um, but you got to pay it back by spring. Well, in the springtime, most restaurants don't have, in our case, any money in the bank at all. They're waiting for the summer to come. So we um, we, we got our fingers crossed on that one. I think that's the biggest thing that government could do right now for, for small business in Canada is to extend those loans. Final question, uh, looking at the E and Tostens and Crystal Ball. Tell me what the industry looks like in five years from now. After all of what they're going through, what we're seeing today, What's it look like on the other side five years from now? Big cities will have big restaurants because big cities attract tourism and and uh, big events. You just only have to witness what's going on in Vancouver. Um, that just is sustaining a whole bunch. So you're going to see all your premium restaurants and that excitement. You'll continue to see um, um, you know regional development in neighborhoods where restaurants will play more and more important role. I don't think we're going to see a, um, a return to uh, office work like we saw before. So you're going to see the strength in regional restaurants, but they're going to be much more service oriented. They're going to be doing other other revenue streams, as I said before, you know, delivery and and uh, pickup and uh, in smaller spaces and size, so the restaurant owners aren't paying as much money. And they're going to have great patios, and maybe those patios will be built to last year round and not be so functional. So we'll we'll have a very robust. Industry, um, I think you'll see more uh, continued emphasis on local food, local wines, just because of the uncertainty. We talked about jazz with these supply chains. So we've got a good picture here. Um, but we just need to calm down these costs. I mean, not just for us, but even the, the regular person at home. As, as, long, as we get inflation under control and get cost containment, then I think we can start working our way back to uh, to strong industry. And you know what? Um, we we are, are probably one of the most innovative restaurant sectors or industries in all of North America right here in British Columbia. So many things have been developed here, and I think that, that, that enthusiasm and, and innovation will continue. Yeah. Ian, thank you for your time as always. Thanks, Jazz. All the very best. Welcome back to the show. Well, a new survey confirms what you already probably know, either with your own finances or what you hear from family and friends. The survey conducted by the Angus Reid Institute shows more and more Canadians are struggling with their monthly mortgage payments and are worried about higher payments when they have to renew. Around 15% of borrowers say they find the financial aspect of their mortgage very difficult up from 11% in June and 8% in March. Now, if people are worried about paying their mortgage with rising rates, or are people actually buying homes, and what impact is this having on the real estate industry? Well, joining me now to talk about the issue is Ron Butler. He's a mortgage broker at Butler Mortgages. Ron, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start first and foremost with the uh, study done by the Angus Reid Institute, uh, talking about the fact that um, Canadians are finding it very difficult 
um, to uh, deal with their monthly mortgage payments. The numbers have gone up uh, slightly from uh, March, um, and they've been going up uh, uh, since then. Your thoughts, first and foremost, do you think this will get worse before it gets better? Absolutely going to get worse. Uh, there's no question that there, you know, there's 70,000 renewals a month in Canada, and not all those renewals are at a significantly higher rate than what people started with three or five years ago. And it's just going to get worse. I mean, every month, more people having to spend more on their monthly payment or biweekly payment on their mortgage. These rates aren't coming down next week, next month. They will eventually come down. They may come down at some point next year, but that's not anytime soon. So, yeah, we're going to see more of this. Um, in regards to that, you said 70000 uh, a month, uh, and I guess for the numbers could even ex- exceed that. I mean, that's the average, but the renewal rate for each bank is going to be different. I was reading in some cases banks are going to be, some of them are going to hit the 20%, 30% renewals next year, so the numbers could even be higher next year. Yeah, the biggest years uh, start next year. 24 is big, 25 is even bigger, and then followed by 26. So, yeah, we're going to see a ton of renewals coming. Up. Wow. Um, let's talk a little bit about the industry then. Um, if uh, people are renewing, I keep hearing anecdotally, there are, you know, a lot of, there's not a lot of sales out there. Certainly, there's property available, and the good properties may sell. But overall, the market's pretty quiet. What are you hearing? Perfect houses sell quickly. Sought-after neighborhoods, sought-after houses. It goes right down as fine as the street. They will sell. Uh, but other than that, no. The market is incredibly quiet. It's uh, getting quieter in the lower mainland. In Ontario, it is phenomenally quiet. You know, we're looking at, uh, in Ontario, like multi-decade lows in terms of uh, total sales volume of new homes, sorry, of existing homes, of resale homes. And there's 3 million more people here than there was 20, 25 years ago. So it is an amazingly quiet market. And the only bright spot is Alberta. Um, and even they're coming off a little bit. Uh, but certainly in British Columbia, cooling and in Ontario, uh, pretty much really cold. Wow. Uh, and, and I guess for, for real estate agents themselves, I mean, are they just uh, like the Maytag repairman, just just waiting or just folks not making any sales? Well, yeah, uh, that's, you know, I talked to a, a real estate team lead uh, just over the weekend. Uh, she's gone from uh, 45 agents on her team down to 12 in the course of about six or seven months since the beginning of the year. And uh, it's not getting better. It'll only get worse. I mean, uh, you know, it's a commission business, and if you're not selling houses, if houses aren't selling, if the volume of sales is down dramatically, 60, 65%, um, some people are not going to be selling any houses. And in a pure commission job, that's zero income. There's probably no EI, not too many people on an EI in that business. Uh, there's, so there's no support whatsoever. Oh, and by the way, you may have to keep paying. There may be certain desk fees and other fees to stay in the profession. Uh, it's actually costing you money not to make money. So moving forward here, uh, do you expect any more uh, rate hikes, or, or do you think with our fight against inflation, numbers are looking better that perhaps we, the Bank of Canada might hold off on any increase for the remainder of the year? I think the real key is the bank is starting to see the outcome of their rate hikes. They're starting to see layoffs in certain job categories. We've noticed a string of bank layoffs in the last two weeks. Uh, that will probably continue. Uh, other areas of the economy where there will be layoffs. And that ultimately was the bank's goal. I know it sounds brutal and horrible, but that was ultimately their goal, to cause people to reach a point where they're going to severely reduce their spending. And this is what, because they're either unemployed or they have a fear of unemployment, and uh, you will see that their spending drops and that normally in all other situations over history has resulted in uh, a reduction in inflation. Hmm. So I think once the Bank of Canada governor is very sure that his, his mission is accomplished and that the economy is contracting, he doesn't have to uh, wait for all the inflation numbers to flatten out. He can just stop increasing and let the thing play out as the economy worsens. But there is no cuts coming. That's the important part. There's no cuts on the horizon, no cuts. 
uh, in the foreseeable future, no cuts till maybe the latter half of next year. And do you think that first cut, whether it be a quarter point, half point, whatever it is, do you think that's going to be the big uh, moment that finally tells people, okay, we're heading in the right direction after that? I mean, is that what's going to turn the market around, uh, whether it's Toronto or Vancouver? There's no question that based on the level of immigration that takes place in this country, it mainly goes to just a handful of provinces because Quebec doesn't allow the same number of people to come into Quebec uh, as we do in other provinces. So it's concentrated in certain areas. It's growing. We know, we read about it, we hear about it. The levels of immigration that we've seen, the number of uh, student visas issued, number of uh, temporary foreign workers that are here, they all need a place to stay. It puts pressure on the housing market. So yes, once the rate cuts finally become clear and you know, there's a, a rate with a lower number in front of it, right now most rates start with a six, a few with a seven. Uh, if we can finally get down to a point where we're going to see a rate start with a four again, uh, then yes, we will see an increase in housing activity for sure. Uh, final question to you. A lot of the investing and building of homes, whether it's in Vancouver or Toronto, you know, maybe local investors as well who have a, a line of credit or may borrow from the bank uh, for a year or so to build that home and, and to flip it. Um, that business, which is was very busy and a lot of people were part of that uh, prior to all of this occurring, the rate hikes occurring. Uh, do you see any of that returning anytime soon? Because that was such a big part of the building boom, certainly in Vancouver, and I'm going to assume in Toronto as well. Do you do you expect that side of the business to be returning anytime soon? Well, that has certainly been dead as a doornail for the last um, number of months, and will continue to be. And that at one point, that was almost every third home sold in the Lower Mainland and in uh, southwestern Ontario in 2021. That was one out of every three houses was purchased by an investor. So it, is, it is, was massive at the time. It's almost absent now. And yes, uh, lower rates will bring it back. But here's the thing. Mm-hmm. When I say that there'll be a rate of, say, 499 or 489 or 469, it's never going to be, in, in, in the near future, it's never going to be 249 again. So but these prices, even some investors will have a hard time with a 499 rate to be able to make those rents work and be able to say that they can make a profit on the uh, on the property. So we may not see investors flock back to the market in the same way that we saw in the past. Ron, as always, thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Welcome back to the show. Our next guest was born and raised in Terrace, B.C. He is part of the Gitsan Nation. Now, that's a long way from Wall Street. For the past 20 years, Bill Lomax has worked for firms like Smith Barney and Goldman Sachs. Well, now Bill Lomax has returned back to Canada in his new role as the new CEO of the First Nations Bank of Canada. He joins us now. Mr. Lomax, thank you uh, for speaking to us today. Thanks so much for having me on, Jeff. Well, let's start uh, first and foremost. 22 years um, on Wall Street, different financial firms. Was it, was it a tough decision to come back to British Columbia and Canada? Honestly, it was a little bit. I had a really great job uh, down in the States, and I, I figured that I would probably retire there. But when, I, uh, when, when this job came up, uh, it was really a no-brainer. It was an opportunity to come up and do a lot of the things that I love to do. Uh, and an opportunity to get home again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was really important to both me and my family. Now, when um, we talked about the Bank of Canada, people know what that is, but very few people know about the First Nations Bank of Canada. Give me a, a, a history lesson in regards to sort of when it started and, and what kind of work it does. Absolutely. So First Nations Bank of Canada was established in 1996. And quite honestly, back then it was uh, it seemed like a little bit of a pipe dream. And uh, it was started with about $5 million. And it was started because a number of chiefs out in Saskatchewan felt that they were not getting the service that they wanted from the big five banks. Uh, And so fast forward 26, 27 years later, and the bank has grown dramatically. It's actually done really quite well. Uh, uh, If you look at where we're located, though, you'll notice that even though technically we have uh, offices coast to coast to coast, that we're really more centered in the middle and in the north. Uh, so uh, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, a little bit in Alberta, uh, and then a lot in the far north. 
I'm here to try and change all of that currently. We're trying to really move aggressively uh, into British Columbia and more into Alberta uh, and then into Ontario and the Maritimes as well. How much money does the bank handle presently, roughly? Uh, We have about a billion two in deposits currently. We also do trust administration. We have about another billion uh, 1.1 billion there. Yeah, you 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 mentioned that uh, the bulk of the work that the the First Nations Bank does is um, in the central part of Canada, the prairies, and up north. Um, how much of a role do you think BC can play for you in your portfolio and just expanding the business and investing in First Nations community in regards to this particular moment in our province uh, and First Nations communities? Well, this is really an exciting time to be trying to do business in British Columbia. You have, uh, first of all, you have over 200 First Nations here in B.C. that are not being served by us for the most part currently. So that's a lot of opportunity uh, on that front. But it's also a time when the First Nations are really in a financial ascension. Really, there's uh, a lot going on for them uh, that had not been going on, uh, certainly in my lifetime. So I'm quite excited about the opportunities here in BC and what we at the bank can do to help First Nations as they look at the future. You know, when I think of First Nations communities here in in the perch that I'm at and and, and watching uh, these communities, uh, I've been a reporter for almost... 25, 30 years now, and uh, I look at a large-scale LNG project at Heisla Territory up at Kitimat, $36 billion investment, largest private sector investment in this country. Uh, there are smaller projects, Cedar LNG. I think the, the Nishka are also looking at a potential LNG project or pipeline. You've got the Synox project here in uh, downtown Vancouver, south side of the Broad Street Bridge there, and many other developments coming uh, potentially as well. You've got you know potentially the wine industry in the interior. Uh, is there a particular a segment of the of um, uh, sectors or se- segment or of the economy you want to focus on because there is a wide variety like I said from wine to, to LNG to real estate is there a particular sector you want to focus on here in regards to British Columbia natural resources versus others well honestly we don't choose particular sectors we do what our clients need us to do so we will for example 10 years ago uh, if we look back 10 years ago we didn't know much about forestry, mm-hmm. uh, but then one of our biggest clients uh, got heavily into forestry, owns a sawmill, and we learned a lot, and we've done a lot more in that uh, space ever since. So we're looking to basically do anything that our clients need us to do. Uh, we're more focused on our clients and what they're doing than we are in a particular industry. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, after graduating from law school, my understanding, you, you graduated from law school at uh, UBC, uh, but you went into finance. Right. How did that How did that occur? When you go to law school, generally people assume you're going to end up in law. Uh, why did you change your mind? You know, honestly, I think I ended up going into law because I thought, it was kind of an easy path of sorts. I was getting ready to finish up undergrad, and I didn't know what I was going to do. So it seemed easy to just sort of extend my time in school and go and finish up uh, working in the legal world. But I realized pretty quickly that it wasn't really what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, uh, and that I was really more interested in the markets and in finance. Uh, So I decided I would go back to school, and that's how I ended up down in the States. Uh, I went down to do an MBA at Columbia University. Uh, it, when you're in the high-flying world of finance in the United States, uh, one would argue, you know, clearly the biggest economy in the world, the epicenter of finance to a certain degree between New York and London. Uh, what was it like coming home? I mean, did you always have this desire to at some point come back? Uh, you, you were born and raised, as I said, in Terrace. Was there always a desire to come back here, or or was this a uniqueish, unique a job opportunity that really said, okay, this fits my skill set, and I think this is where I can make things work? Well, I'd say yes to both of those. Uh, I always did want to come back. I never found an opportunity that really seemed to work for me. Uh, quite frankly, and it's a, I thought it was a little strange, the Canadian banks never really tried to pursue me, despite uh, my trying to connect with them on several occasions over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there really just wasn't an opportunity that spoke to me. I had job offers uh, left and right down in the States, so I was a little surprised about that. But then this job opportunity came up, and it really, uh, kind of as you said, it spoke to me, 
provides a, an opportunity to provide a lot of nation-building leadership, uh, an opportunity to provide mentorship to uh, young uh, First Nations folks who are trying to make their make a career in finance, uh, and an opportunity to serve uh, Indigenous communities across the country. Well, Bill, it's uh, you have a fabulous backstory, and you've got a lot of work ahead of you because there's so many opportunities. And you're right, the community, the communities across uh, British Columbia First Nations communities are on the ascension, and it is uh, where I said fabulous to watch and see as well. Lots going on. Look forward to having you on the show uh, in the near future as well. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. Premier David Eby and Workforce Development Minister Andrew Mercier introduced a new bill today that promises new arrivals to British Columbia uh, that they can put their training and ability to work as quickly as possible. Now, the promise to speed up the employment of immigrants with foreign training has been a priority for uh, Premier Eby since he became Premier in November of 2022. Here is the Premier earlier today. This new law, if it passes, will require regulatory bodies to remove unfair barriers for 29 different professions that are frustrating and ultimately cause people to give up and work in a field that they're not trained in and they don't have experience in. Things like having to recertify your English every single year at significant cost, despite the fact that you've already proven that you know how to speak the language and you're living in British Columbia. Uh, Examples like... uh, Canadian work experience, which is a catch-22. How do you get Canadian work experience if you're not allowed to work in Canada in the field where you have experience? That was Premier David Eby speaking earlier today. Well, the other person at the press conference there was, of course, Andrew Mercier, Minister of State for Workforce Development. Uh, Minister, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Uh, how big of an announcement is this? And I, and I say this because I'm a reporter of a certain vintage. I've heard a lot of this in the 90s under the NDP government then. I heard it a lot during the B.C. Liberal uh, government for 16 years. How is this different from previous announcements in your mind? Well, I mean, this is clear, discernible action for internationally credentialed professionals. Um, you know, and uh, and you heard the Premier's comment there about Canadian work experience requirements. You know, in the, over the past few months and since taking on this role, I've spoken to hundreds of internationally trained professionals, domestically trained professionals, the regulatory bodies, advocacy groups, and everyone else. And uh, And I've heard loud and clear from everyone that the system's not working. Everyone agrees it's not working. And there are elements of it that, you know, really hit you as being fundamentally unfair. The Canadian work experience requirement is one of them. And for, for listeners who may not know, um, in certain professions, um, once you've met your competency requirements, once you've met, you know, your educational requirements and everything's been deemed uh, as having been met when you're an international licensee coming in, mm-hmm. um, there's also sometimes requirements that you work for a number of years effectively as an apprentice in your profession um, and getting paid at a cut rate. And all, you know, I uh, remember a conversation I had um, a few months ago with an Iranian engineer and he took, he went through every step of the way um, to get his engineering background recognized in British Columbia. And he was successful. And, you know, he told me about how he had to work other jobs, uh, support his family. It was a big income loss for him. Um, and very stressful. Mm-hmm. He finally got to the end and was then told, you have to go find another engineer to take you on to supervise you um, so you can do uh, work that's somewhat less than you would do as an engineer. And he looked at me and he said that the message to him as an immigrant professional was that his 20 plus years of experience abroad mm-hmm. was not worth a single day in British Columbia. And that's a clear example of an unfair, unnecessary barrier that most regulators would like to get away from um, and that we need, to, uh, we need to take action on. So we're going to remove it. So, okay, if it's the government's not getting in the way, one would argue, okay, it's licensing agencies, it's uh, colleges, uh, it's universities, um, it's uh, gatekeepers uh, in, in many cases. It could be in the medical field, it could be the engineering field, as, you, as, as you've uh, um, articulated well there. How do you convince those folks that this will be done and needs to be done, or, and there will be accountability if you don't do it? Yeah, and I think accountability is the very core part of that. So what this legislation does 
is it sets up a superintendent of international credential um, recognition uh, that has authority with these 18 regulatory colleges under this act that has authority to enforce the provisions of the act. Uh, about a year ago, we passed the Health Professions and Occupations Act that sets up a similar superintendent for the health professions because we started with health professions because, you know, there's a, there's a need and they're very complex. Um, and what they're going to be doing is working hand in hand to devise guidelines um, on the assessment process that will then be enforced across the board. And I'll give you an example. Like there are things that you would think of as just basic mm-hmm. that, uh, that are huge issues, like transparency in terms of the pathway for a licensee. You know, people in Canada, and our point system federally encourages people to come to Canada because they're professionals, but then finding out how to become licensed can be impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's pretty clear that best practice is setting out the pathway for people on a website or something that is uh, that people can find that that applicants can find, um, so that we can get people through the process and working. So we're going to set standards and standards on um, timelines as well through that process. But there's some pretty big pieces like the Canadian Work Experience that mm-hmm. we're going to take immediate action on. Uh, I'm curious, and this is a tough ca- question to answer, but why do you think it's taken us so long as a society? And, I, and it's not one party or one government I'm blaming here. Like I said, this was occurring and there was a conscious effort in the 90s by the NDP government then. I think I, I fundamentally believe there was a conscious effort by BC Liberals as well. I think everybody sees the problem. But why do you think we as a society have taken this long? Because that's you know essentially what I've just described as three decades of governments not being able to push this stuff through. Why do you think that is? Yeah, well, so I'll, I'll say a, I'll say a few things there. The uh, you know, and in, in fairness, since we've gotten elected in 2017, we've really made this a priority, and we created uh, in 2019 the Credential Assessment Improvement Fund, which is a fund just there for regulators to improve their processes. They want to improve a process for an international applicant; we'll pay for it. Um, and uh, but you know, and I, I go back to a comment I made earlier to you there, Jazz, about how. Everyone I talk to, no one defended the status quo. Everyone realizes and has come to a point, I think, of consensus that this isn't working. Um, and it can't go on like that, which is go on like this, which is what this act is about, which is saying, okay, we all understand it's not working. And everyone agrees with that. Now, I couldn't find anyone in the, um, anyone in the uh, regulatory authorities in my meetings with them that said, you know, we think that this is working for everyone. They acknowledged more work needs to happen. Um, but we're at a point where, where um, you know, it's uh, it's at a tipping point right now. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it gets talked about a lot in economic terms because, you know, we have a million job openings over the next uh, over the next decade, and, and about a third of them are going to be filled um, with uh, immigrant professionals. But, I mean, it's also a basic social justice issue. Mm-hmm. that, you know, everyone deserves to be treated fairly and equitably, regardless of their country of origin. What do you make to the argument? And you're going to get it, and I've got it on the open line here. Um, occasionally you do hear it. Well, we can't lower our standards. Too, af- too often we're lowering our standards. We're making uh, space for folks that we probably shouldn't be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes training systems, look, if, you know, if it's a doctor, uh, the UK system is probably very similar to ours. South Africa system would be very similar to ours, but other nations may not be in Asia. What do you say to that argument that, you know, it's a slippery slope because you you may water down some of the requirements. You are uh, lowering standards potentially. What do you say to that argument? Well, I'd say the goal here isn't to water down standards. It's to bring people up and remove barriers that are in their way. And so, you know, regulatory authorities um, do have a very important role uh, in British Columbia and in Canada, which is to protect the public interest and to protect the integrity of the profession. So they have control over the technical competency and knowledge requirements. And that, you know, it should, it ought to be, you know, the, um, the College of Engineers or the College of Architects or the College of Nurses laying out what the requirements of knowledge and practice and scope are to enter into those professions. But, you know, when you speak to international applicants, you know, I've spoken to so many people who want desperately to, who are, you know, working in the service industry or driving for, um, driving for different kind of gig jobs who want desperately to work in their profession, 
who are sitting around clicking refresh on a website to see if their application has been accepted and sometimes do that for a year or more because they can't get someone on the phone to be assessed. We need to make this a priority and we need to handle these timeline issues. Um, And this act does that and the work we're going to do with the superintendent does that. But what we're not going to do is we're not going to water down standards. What we're going to do is get the common sense issues here around process and fix them. Minister, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Well, today, Global Affairs Canada said a social media campaign that is likely connected to China is targeting dozens of MPs with spam. The campaign included deep fake videos and hate spewing tweets. Spamouflage campaign. Uh, the spamouflage campaign included over 5,000 social media posts targeting Canadian politicians, including Prime Minister Trudeau and opposition leader Pierre Polyev. The findings uh, come from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Joanna Chu broke the story today. She is a senior reporter with a Toronto star and the author of China Unbound, A New World Disorder. She joins us now. Joanna, thank you for speaking to us today. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, how does this uh, spamouflage campaign work? So spamouflage was first detected by social media companies several years ago, and platforms like Twitter, Facebook have taken down, you know, hundreds of thousands of um, accounts associated with the Beijing government um, that basically spams posts on social media platforms, really drowning out um, actual people, and many of these are bots, um, with an intent to confuse, disorient, or promote views that are very favorable to the Chinese government. Uh, And one assumes it's not the first time they've done this. I mean, it's generally been uh, assumed, I think, by people, not just China, but many other uh, interests, countries, uh, do mm-hmm. this on a semi-regular basis? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's activity from Russia, from India that we've seen definitely targeting Canadians. Um, but this is interesting because it was a very intensive campaign for about a month, this mm-hmm. past August to September, attacking not just, um, you know, Canadian influential people um, in politics, but specifically Canadian politicians, including most, of the attacks were targeting Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, also Conservative leader Pierre Poilievre. Um, so it's quite targeted at politicians. And it seemed to subside a few days after uh, Canada announced um, who would be leading the public inquiry into foreign interference. So that's an interesting correlation. Um, and speaking with the analysts in Australia, actually, who uncovered a lot of this activity and shared it with us exclusively, um, the intent um, is really getting quite personal at Canadian politicians, including attacking their family members, um, questioning the sexual orientation of their children, um, accusing <laughs> Canadian politicians of being bad parents, things like that. Mm-hmm. Now, the end game was to influence who we chose to run an inquiry, or is this a deeper um, campaign to just sow unrest within our uh, political discourse in this country. Yeah, I think what's unique about what China does around the world, and I've covered this in our reporting and my book, um, is that it is the intent seems to be so broad, um, not really about pushing certain narratives, such as about, say, the war in Ukraine that uh, Russia does, but about pretty much fomenting as much confusion and um kind of negative feelings about the Canadian government in Canada as possible. Um, and there's a lot of resources that China has to have these kind of broad-reaching um, objectives. Uh, but it is it should be said that after quite a while, like you said, of this happening, social media companies do seem to be on the ball. A lot of the activity that I have independently identified has since been detected and disabled by these um, social media platforms. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there anything else we can do as a nation to combat this beyond uh, pushing social media companies to be vigilant, Mm -hmm. Um, especially when I look at um, X, formerly known as Twitter? They've let go of a lot of employees that once did Mm -hmm. that type of work. Um, And I would think relying on a private sector company is perhaps not the best way to secure the discourse of a nation, is there anything we need to be do- doing yeah. in your mind to, to combat some of this? 
Yeah, so when I was doing my research to verify what the Australian uh, think tank shared with me, it was interesting that a lot of the activity that was still online and searchable and being able to be found by me was on X, formerly Twitter, um, and they were only taken down and accounts were suspended, as far as I can tell, in the last week, when this has been going on since August. So whereas on uh, YouTube and Facebook, Instagram, these accounts um, were suspended kind of earlier. So there's varying speeds. And, you know, the question you raise about resources of social media companies having this kind of national security issue up to them is something that people uh, have expressed discomfort with, um, have called on governments like Canada to actually um, implement legislation that would lay out certain legal responsibilities that social media companies need to abide by and jurisdictions like the European Union actually have some of these in place where um, they're not only you know, letting social media companies know that they should take down uh, these activity, but they're legislating that even from the design process, how algorithms work, how the design of social media platforms work, that they're really targeting, trying to discourage as much disinformation and online harassment and harm as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And is that where we should, be, we should be looking at the EU and perhaps even other countries like Australia, not necessarily on social media, but mm-hmm. in regards to foreign policy being a bit more aggressive back at China, or at least kind of counteract what China is doing? Is that where we should be looking in regards to best practices? Mm-hmm. Well, I can't, you know, prescribe what the government should do, being a journalist, trying to remain neutral. Mm-hmm. But I think it is fair to say that other countries have different models of tackling this. Currently, Canada doesn't have legislation in place. It is working on online harm legislation, but sources tell us that disinformation will not be a central part of this legislation that Ottawa is working on that would have some um, guidelines and expectations for social media companies. Um, whereas in places like Europe, again, they have passed legislation, the UK has, and Taiwan has an interesting approach, and I uh, got to talk to some Taiwanese politicians about it when I visited Taiwan um, over a year ago, that they are really working with civil society groups to empower ordinary people to know how to recognize uh, disinformation coming from China, because as you can imagine, China really targets Taiwanese uh, social media spaces. So they're really trying to educate people and, you know, reach out, actually go into communities, talk to people, including the elderly. Um, so it's not all just online uh, to try to make sure that ordinary citizens know how to, A, identify this information and B, have resources where they can quickly ask a question and verify whether something is true or not. Uh, Joanna, I just want to expand the conversation just a little bit beyond just this uh, influence campaign. You're still looking at a country that represents nearly 25% of humanity in China. We'll st- mm-hmm. We still trade with China. Uh, you had mentioned uh, India in your com- uh, conversation as, wire- as well prior to the break. Here's another uh, country which is now even more populous than India, or sorry, than China, and also representing mm-hmm. a significant, significant amount of people. I think collectively both countries represent about 40% of humanity. How do we counteract some of these influence campaigns, yet at the same time, the challenges of actually still interacting with these countries. I mean, it looks like Canada is in a real tough place because we are um, having some difficult difficulty in our relationship with both nations, yet at the same time, we still need to be interacting with them, trading with them, and yet we're still dealing with potentially influence campaigns in our in our country, and in one case with India, mm-hmm. uh, being involved with them killing one of our citizens. Yeah, it's really tough. Um, you can't um, really feasibly cut off uh, ties between um, our country and, you know, two of the largest countries in the world, mm-hmm. making up so much of the world population, um, either on a government level or a people-to-people level or business-to-business. Um, I think a lot of criticism was levied at Canada's response to what China had been doing because the response was kind of, okay, what's the next biggest country in Asia, India, let's um, craft our Indo-Pacific strategy around uh, optimism that India-Canada trade and diplomatic relations will be stable and uh, fruitful for both sides, let's pursue a trade deal. 
but you know that was already rocky given um, existing tensions and with um, this intelligence that the Indian government was likely behind in that assassination of a Canadian on Canadian soil. All of a sudden, Canada's um, plan to deal with the uh, decline in relations with China is also kind of up in smoke. Um, realistically, um, people say it's really tough, but diversifying as much as possible, uh, not just one country or this country, like pivoting to you know these large countries, but um, broadly, you know, working with Vietnam, working with uh, Indonesia, um, Australia, and putting that work more diffusely um, would be a way to go. And that will also um, make kind of diaspora communities feel like they are less likely to uh, have the geopolitics overshadow their ongoing human rights complaints. So, for example, people in the Sikh Canadian Indian diaspora have been warning, similarly to Chinese Canadians for years, that they have been targeted, harassed, um, by the Indian state, and they feel that they have been ignored partly um, out of business interest. Um, so it's very complicated because at the same time, a lot of people in Canada, their livelihoods are reliant on um, their countries not completely blowing up relations <laughs> with uh, other major countries. So there's really not a clear answer there. But um, overall, as a journalist, I would think that as much public education and awareness as possible um, will only help... Um, people navigate this kind of tricky terrain. Yeah, it is a, it's a tough one to navigate and a tough one to answer as well. Final question to you. Uh, I guess we can expect the same sort of campaign or some sort of influence campaign, one must assume, during the next federal election as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So, you know, a lot of analysts and researchers were disappointed at the previous federal election because um, the one previous to the one that had passed... Um, people were already already warning about influence campaigns having occurred, uh, feeling that despite these warnings uh, that politicians, that the government was not better prepared to monitor. Um, I think Canada is slowly getting there. Um, this May, when uh, MP Michael Chong, again, was targeted with a disinformation campaign, really going after him on the really popular Chinese platform WeChat, um, targeting Canadian-based users of uh, WeChat and attacking Michael, um, the government actually released a statement. Um, but they released a statement recently rather than at the time. I think um, when these kind of public uh, education and notifications are more timely, that this will be a way to equip people to know what they're seeing, that there is uh, notifications in place that, um, they can look up if they see a post um, that looks like it could be um, nefarious of some sort, that there's a way to, in a more timely manner, figure out what is actually going on. Joanna, as always, thank you for your time. Thank you, Jess. Thanks for highlighting our reporting. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.